welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, oh man, this is a doozy. This is like a, this is a top 10 episode for sure. Brian Baker of the band Minor Threat, of, of Dagnasty, of uh, Doggy Rock, of Sam Hain of meat men and of course of bad religion and more on that in one second, but get ready, get ready. Uh, but first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com that and the Facebook page, which is turned out a punk uh, run by my brother and show producer and Instagram runner as well. Turned out a punk Instagram's page, Tristan Abraham and guest booker extraordinaire. So thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work for you, you do for this show each and every week. I really appreciate it, buddy. Uh, and uh, if you want to get in touch with me more directly, you can find me on various forms of social media at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast. You can also uh, subscribe to it and rate it on your podcast platform of choice, or you can support our Patreon over there at patreon.com slash turnitapunk, where we do footnotes and have a lot of fun and... And you can go go check that out if you want. Uh, and speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few well, years ago now and said, do what you do, just just don't lose money at it, Damien, and we will help you. And they have been helping me uh, not go to my own pocket for this thing anymore. So thank you so much, Vans, for coming on board and doing that way back when. All right. I think I'm, uh, we zoomed through that because I want to get into today's episode. Today on the show, Brian Baker. Now, thank you, first of all, to my buddy, Christina at Mutiny for kind of setting this all up. And this is a dream one, you know, and I, I don't even think I, you know, I went into it obviously pretty excited to talk to him, but I don't think I fully appreciated all the different places this conversation would go. And it goes, it goes. We go to a lot of different places. Um, I'm, I'm just going to let you uh, listen to it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Uh, there are a couple issues with the audio. The line wasn't the greatest, uh, but don't worry. It, it's, it, you can listen to it. It's no rougher than like a Finnish hardcore demo. That's for sure. Uh, so sit back, relax, and enjoy Brian Baker on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. I was, uh, I've just been hanging out at home lately. Uh, you know, not leaving for any reason. So, uh, I got plenty of time and I'm a fan of your work. So I'm glad that we could talk. I'll be here for a long time. If you want to talk for a long time, that's fine. I'm not really going anywhere. I'm, I'm home. I could talk to you for, I think the duration of this confinement for both of us right now and still not tick all the questions off the list of multiple questions about multiple projects you've been involved in off my list. But we will start today. Uh, my agent only agreed to eight minutes, uh, so you're just going to have to make it quick. <laughs> all right. Lightning round right off the top. Fire away. Well, I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Brian, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Uh, the first time I knew, I, I heard mention of it, I think I did Old Nancy. And I would assume, when is that? 78? 78, yeah. Know. Right? Yeah, 78. I mean, that's how I knew what 
what the term was, but I didn't have any interest in it at all um, at that time. And it's kind of an interesting, uh, well, I hope it's an interesting story, something people might want to hear uh, on a podcast or, you know, deliver to them in some way. Uh, the reason all this punk started for me is that I lived, uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I went to the same uh, I went to, to elementary school with Guy Picciotto and Michael Hampton. Guy, of course, uh, Rites of Spring and Fugazi, Michael Hampton, um, SOA, The Faith, Embrace, and uh, some other punk guys, guys who became punk later. But so I'm, I'm like, I went to school with these guys. And before any of this happened, I, my dad had to move to take a job in Detroit. So I left this school in after sixth grade. And we went to Detroit and uh, things didn't go that well. My parents wind up splitting up. Uh, and so I get, my mom moves me back to DC right at the beginning of 1980. And I get back to DC and everybody's hunk. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? I had, I mean, I'm literally, I'm wearing like a Raglan three quarter sleeve REO shirt with like aviator glasses, which I did retain for a long time, uh, and long hair, and I don't have any idea what this is. And, you know, basically, um, Michael and Gear into this, and um, some of our other friends, uh, old friends, and I basically was like, I've got a, and everybody, you know, they were getting, <laughs> they couldn't ride the bus, or people were giving them shit everywhere they went. There's, you know, it was just this, you know, the exact punk story. And I, I said, well, I've got to figure out what the fuck this is. Um, and Michael Hampton uh, basically turned me on to records at his house. And it took just a very short amount of time when I realized that, you know, to kind of fit in with my old friends, I need to become a complete outcast of society. So I, I, you know, I shallowly dove in <laughs> with, with, with the intention of like, uh, I don't know, just trying to, I guess, rekindle the friendships with these guys I had. Um, and it took, it was probably took two or three months before I really, really hit me. It really crystallized what exactly it was that I was listening to. And it really, how it, how it just sort of took over my life from a, you know, in the real way. This was, it's kind of weird. I was kind of like posering my way in and then it, then I couldn't get out. Do you remember the band it was that you heard that kind of crystallized it for you? Or was it like a band? Um, well, it's just, it's just after school being at people's houses, listening to their records. And I know what we had. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, uh, everyone liked the damned. Everyone liked the clash. I remember that vile tones, uh, this vile tone single, everybody could not stop playing. Um, making me sick, I think is what it was, uh, adverts, um, kind of a lot of British obscura. And later I realized this is because the one record store we had in town that we would make treks out to had a, the guy who bought for them was a genius. And so he brought all of this kind of off the wall kind of, uh, UK stuff that was not I guess what it would probably have been third wave UK stuff. This is the guy, how we found out about discharge and how we found out about crass and, uh, you know, all of that kind of black and white EP looking shit, partisans, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. 
Well, it's yeah, it's funny because that like vile tone single is obscure in Toronto, you know, and this is where it's from. Yet, you know, there's that bad. I I was you know at the Discord house one time. I was lucky enough to hear a recording of. Uh, the Bad Brains covering Screaming Fist by the Vile Tones at one of their first shows. And it's like, I guess it's all from that record store having, you know, that amazing taste to yeah. get these records. Yeah, it really is. It was uh, it was yesterday and today records, and it was run by a man named Skip Groff, who unfortunately he died last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had so much to do with access. And he was, uh, you know, I mean, he's he's a big reason why we're talking right now. And I'm sure a lot of my friends, you know, from that time will agree. It's it's another record that I, you know, and this I guess will come up much later, but the Empire record and the impact that that record, like another record that just kind of like sunk into obscurity in England. Yeah. Yet it's picked up through that record store and becomes the foundation of like a sonic that's so important to the history of American music at this point. It's weird, but that's that's true. There's Empire, and there was uh, other little things that kind of went into that, like uh, Lime Spiders, uh, some Australian and New Zealand stuff, Hoodoo Gurus, uh, The Church, like where the fuck we were getting these records and how they informed, like this was kind of, th- that those, those sounds kind of came in kind of right at the end of our hardcore obsession when people were looking for more stuff. And... Um, it's just funny to look back now and see the kind of, you know, now that I, you can clearly see the roadmap. It's just such a weird combination um, of how DC stuff wound up the way it is. Yeah, but it's all awesome stuff too. It's like, it's all like these random, like you're saying, these completely random bands that all go into this stew, but it's all like really good ingredients going in. So it's, it's no wonder something comes out pretty awesome too. Yeah, it, it is. But our, none of our music really sounds like that. Mm-hmm. When you, you know, DC just doesn't sound like that. And that's kind of a strange thing because they were certainly as you know, potentially influential, um, you know, as uh, just this. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of another just weirdo one that, that I, I'm picturing it in like the stack of singles at Michael's house. But I'm the Saints. Oh, yeah, Thank absolutely. There. Yeah. yeah. Still there. The Saints. Thank you. But that's also like it's such such a record collector (laughs) kind of scene that you guys are are coming out of, you know, and I guess it's once again, it's all back to to that record store. Yeah, because we had a local, you know, our 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 comic book guy was a record collector guy and he was, you know, the stereotype in a lot of ways. Um, He liked all kinds of stuff that I could not stand. And he, you know, he was a. I mean, he wasn't punk. He was just passionate about music. Yeah. You know, everyone except me wound up working in a store, uh, you know, on and off. And that was a way to be able, you know, you would just get paid in records. Mm-hmm. And it's just, to, you know, this this guy is kind of what how all this happened. So it's uh, Skip Groff, thank you. I think we say, Skip, we love you at the end of a Minor Threat song on one of those, one of the many records we put out. <laughs> You definitely do. To, I think it's the end of Stepping Stone, maybe? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Someone someone who actually listens to Minor Touch should probably <laughs> chime in. I'm, I got it. I'm, I don't really hang out cranking it. Yeah. It'd be weird if you did. I think that would be much more disturbing. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you. 100%. <laughs> 
not that it's not amazing, but I think at the same time, like on an egomaniacal level, I, I you know, I think, yeah. you know, I, but going back, what was your first show that you went to? The first, yes, the first show I went to was Cramps, Teen Idols at the Ontario Theater. Uh, and this was, I think, in the fall of 1980. I, you know, we, fucking Ian McKay remembers everything. And he could right now tell you exactly the date and what the weather was like. And I honestly, I have to go to him a lot to say, like, was I here? Do you remember... <laughs> What was I doing on Wednesday, the 24th of August, 1982? Well, Brian, uh, so I can't, I, I think I had already gone punk mm-hmm. and I'm confused whether this was my first show or the first show I saw was the extorts on the top of like a punk rock clothing record store in Georgetown, like on the top of the building um of like a row it was basically like a row house and extras was michael it was basically soa with lyle from minor threat singing and this band was pre-minor threat and pre-soa i think i can't you know you'd have to look at the internet and see if that happened before or after the cramp show but the first real punk show like where you had a ticket and there were lots of people there bumping into each other <laughs> was the cramps teen idols ontario theater um you know i i'm not turning my computer on for this i'm just not doing it I'm, no i understand i'm practicing that too it's just not immediately going to look. let's just go and look i'm not gonna go look i've seen it all man i don't need to go back well, and had you been to other concerts before that yeah i had been to i had I mean, I'd gone to see live music played, um, and I had definitely been to, um, well, I mean, I went to see Santana, and I wound up playing with him. That was, I think, my first concert, like what you would call a concert. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but everybody seems to know it now, the Santana thing. Yeah. Right. So that was the first concert I went to because I was, you know, I I was like, well, if they're all like this, you know. (laughs) <laughs> come on this is mom i have a passion i'm quitting school i'm gonna i'm gonna follow huey lewis um but I, you know i wasn't really a big concert goer like i don't i now that you mention it i don't really think i did like i didn't go to i didn't have a kiss phase i didn't go see kiss i don't i don't recall going to any established concerts you know, with tickets again, like mm-hmm. that kind of open to the public with tickets, stage and lights. So that, before that, but I guess even compared to the Santana experience, which is incredible, this cramp show is so legendary for just how extreme, you know, the cramps at that time also being at the top of their game. hundred you know, percent. Not that they ever got bad, but like, yeah. what was that experience like from a, from, for like an eye opening kind of watershed moment for you? It was a, unbelievable rush of kinetic energy and and it was it was almost orgasmic and shocking because i had no idea what was going to go on and the teen idols are the first band and they're the local punk band at this point like they're the they're you know they are i guess i guess this is they've actually been a band for a little while but i had never seen them but this is the band like okay now you've 
now you've cut your hair off and you've got your mom's pants on and you spend a lot of time listening to records with Michael and Simon. And now we're going to take you to a concert. And this going to happen here is that people are going to, maybe they'll be, maybe they'll be active, but they're not, they're not hurting each other. They're just, they're friends. They're kind of pushing each other. I mean, this, I had no idea what was going on. It was like the Tiana's came on. It was like a bomb went off and it was just this physical chaos. And everybody is just, it's it's kind of before LA style slam. It's not pogoing. It's just this. There were seats, and so it's what you can do within the limitation of a seated venue. Um, this in- insane energy, and I'm just getting. I'm getting. I'm like five feet tall, and I'm just getting the shit knocked out of me, um, non aggressively. And it's so loud. And then there's fucking Lux Interior and it's next. And then I'm, and I'm also, I'm right up front. We're, I guess, for, I don't, I, I mean, I think there were seats, but I don't think there were seated. I don't think it was ticketed as seats. I think it was just a general admission thing. Um, but I mean, it's hard to describe now because it's, it, it, it's still so overwhelming to me how mm. that just the volume and the energy in the room was absolutely unique to my experience up to that point. I saw him in 98 and it was still overwhelming. And that was, you know, years and years later, right? Like they were still, but they were just that band. Like you, you probably got to meet Lux at some point, I would imagine. Um, I don't, I think I might have, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, definitely if I did, it was when I was still a kid. Mm-hmm. Like it wouldn't have been as, a, you know, sort of quasi adult, Brian. I would remember that. Um, I'm friends with Kid Congo. Does that count? Oh, He's no, rad. He, he, one of the coolest people <laughs> ever. Yeah, he's he's totally rad. He's a uh, he lived in D.C. Uh, for a f- maybe three or four years while I was living there too, and we saw a lot of each other. We had a lot of mutual friends. He's an awesome dude, and uh, now he's waiting it out in Arizona. Hi, kid. It's funny how many people come out of D.C. or come, sorry, I guess come through D.C. that don't necessarily get kind of associated with you know D.C. hardcore. Like you know um, later on. Royal Jennifer from Royal Trucks, you know, is from that same scene going to the same shows that you're going to early on. Right. right? And like, you've got even uh pussy galore and all, all these bands, like all these weird bands, but like, how did that stuff kind of fit in or did it fit in at all with, with, uh, you know, the, the DC hardcore stuff? I mean, specifically pussy galore. Well, by the time pussy galore was a thing, I, had fled. I lived in Los Angeles at that okay. point. Yeah. And I got out of, I got out of DC and, uh, my first stab, I went out to LA, like in the beginning of 86 and I stayed for maybe four months. I came back for maybe two months and then went back and stayed for, uh, like nine years. So I can't really speak to that, but I did go to elementary school with Julie Kafritz, who is in Pussy Galore. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. Interesting fact. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing how much stuff comes out of that city. It's like, like you're saying, it's like, it's such a musical city. And then also like, there's all the trouble funk stuff and the DC go-go stuff. Like there's just like so much music. Uh, And the bluegrass should never be denied. And of course I wasn't smart enough to understand, or I just didn't have the, had to not developed an understanding of American folk music. Um, at that time in my life and the amount of bluegrass and the amount of incredible musicians that uh, that are from the DC area and that were playing constantly that I missed is a never-ending source of frustration 
I mean, I could have been I could have been seeing Doc Watson at a delicatessen, you know, two times a month. And I'm too busy, like, you know, fucking putting bandanas on my boots and hanging out in front of a 7-Eleven, just drinking Cokes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, going back to, you know, once again, getting into the becoming a punk fan, I guess. What were some of the early bands that were coming through that you you know, we're, we're gravitating towards being someone who was more into rock music prior to that. Um, skip little fingers. Uh, I mean, the ones that specifically came through DC that I went to get to see, um, skip little fingers is one of my first concerts. It's probably in the first couple. Um, and I remember that one, uh, distinctly because they were playing at an eight, the drinking age was 18 in DC and they were playing at an 18 and over club called the Bayou. And, I was 15, and I think uh, the my friends. I keep bringing back Michael Hampton, but he was just such a you know he was my like my closest punk friend, and he uh, he and I went and we got fake IDs at this like head shop, and they were and it was just so fucking hilarious. I'd give anything if I still had mine. It was IDs for nothing, and I think we actually rubbed, like, you know, like, pencil shavings on our faces. <laughs> and I am literally like, 4'11". We look like we're two. I mean, it's just, the idea that we could possibly be 18 is so insulting to the person who'd be playing the ID and looking at it. But with the time, you know, we thought we were getting away with murder when in fact the club was just making sure that it, you know, it could cover its ass if the cops came. And so they let us in and we went and saw, we saw Stiff Little Fingers and it was, uh, you know, this is a grown up band. This is a real fucking band with men in it from another country who are playing this really aggressive revolutionary music. And that stuck with me. And I, I've been a huge fan of SLF ever since then. I'm very, very proud to be friends with Jake uh, and have spent a lot of time with him over the years. And that's just a, that's a big one as far as it, you know, like this came to my town. I didn't really, and it just took me, it took over. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a huge one. And we all, uh, you know, we also, we had the bad brains. Absolutely. So I don't know how much more you could want than, uh, have Bad Brains access, and though I came in just a little too late, they had just moved to New York when I became involved in punk rock, they still came back all the time. And I saw them in New York as well. So um, that is certainly a, was an experience that I still, to this day, take with me. And it's, it's, it's informed the way I play guitar and the kind of music I like. I mean, you know, Bad Brains are, are one of the most important bands in the history of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. What was the first time you saw them? First time I saw them, I was opening for them in a living room of a house at 1929 Calvert Street Northwest. Um, And it was like a house party. And this was one of Minor Threat's first shows. It might have been our first show. It might have. Ian, we got to call Ian again. I think it was. I think it was our first show, and we opened for the Bad Brains in this, and uh, we played our like whatever it was, probably ten minutes, and the Bad Brains came on, and they played. Um, I think they played. It was just reggae Bad Brains actually at that one. I think they. I don't recall it being it, the the situation wasn't really like backflippy. Mm-hmm. It's somebody's living room, and everyone's really you know a bunch of stoners around. It's very like kind of a 
I don't know if you know anything, know anything about Madame's organ, but it's a, uh, this was kind of a group house that had, uh, that people who, um, used to go to this club, Madam's organ, which is a big bad brains club, uh, in DC again, before my time, this was kind of an adjunct to that. So, um, that was the first time I saw them. And I think the first time I saw them play, uh, the aggressive bad brain stuff must've been nine thirty club. Um, you know, one of the many times that they came back. So would that be definitely in, definitely in 80, 81. Yeah. So is that, is that, there's photos from that very first minor threat show, or there's a video from that very first minor threat show, I think, right. That's on tacked onto the minor threat live video. And once again, not that I expect you to watch that. No, but I have watched it. I have watched it, but I don't know if it's, I'm not sure if I can't, you know, I haven't watched it in so long. I can't tell. I, my memory was that that video was taken at our, actually our site show, um, we played DC space, this thing called the unheard music. Oh, that's it. Yes. Yeah, sorry. That is it. Right. Um, and so that was our, I think that was, you, you might consider our first show because again, this was the first show where people were, were playing in a, in an actual, a club, <laughs> Yeah. you know, that, that music is performed, not somebody's living room with a bunch of rosters. So maybe it's, uh, that's maybe why people think that. And, uh, and I think we played two nights. I think that that was. Two, we, I'm really fuzzy on this early stuff, and I, I didn't do any reading before you uh, before you called me. So well, that's what we want. We want the honesty. Now, if you'd been German, <laughs> okay. If, if I was talking to somebody over there, oh, let me tell you, I would have done a lot of studying. I wouldn't have gotten caught in anything. <laughs> uh, Brian, so junkyard is not good. Why is this? Yeah. <laughs> this one is true. Your new record is not as good as the last one. Why? <laughs> I know that one. Oh, I know that one very Fuck well. you. Oh. Oh. Because the songs aren't as good? I don't know. I'm just a man. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> just trying to play guitar and, you know, do something positive, you fuckers. Uh. But yeah. uh, this is this, they've lightened up now. Now that I'm a now that I'm an elder statesman, it's much more rever- reverential. So I appreciate it. Doctor. <laughs> But there is something that's kind of humbling about the fact that no matter what level of band you are, you're going to get it. You can be Brian Baker or you can be a kid in a grind band on your very first tour playing only squats. You will hear that complaint. Yes, you will. And But then again, there's, you know, consistency, I think, is a hallmark exactly. of some of our European friends. So. <laughs> What like what was your first experience playing a live show like other than the Santana you know famous story obviously right uh well I mean the I, the Calvert Street thing I don't I it was almost like a practice because when we when Minor Threat rehearsed there were people around I mean we practiced at Lyle's mom's house and it was kind of you know we would I think the Untouchables practiced there too and so that you know this was very similar I didn't think of it as a show per se. Um, and I don't really remember much from it. Um, the Unheard Music Festival, I mean, my memory is jogged because I have pictures from it. I actually have one, I think I have one somewhere in my studio when I'm not getting up, um, <laughs> a picture from that from that show. And so because I see what I'm wearing and I kind of, it jogs my memory and it, it just becomes, uh, I remember uh, 
the incredible noise, but also the fact that I couldn't see anybody. And this place probably had, to me, it must have felt like there were 500 people there. It was probably 50 people. But I was on an elevated stage, a small elevated stage, and there were lights on us. And the lights blinded me from seeing anybody or anything. So I've just kind of got, like, I can't really even see the other guys in the band very well. And so I'm kind of in this sort of, you know, white light, noisy thing. And I'm just trying, I'm just trying to play the songs as best I can. And, you know, it wasn't like some cathartic thing or this like, this is it, man. I've got a taste of the gold. Like it was, no, I was just kind of scared and, and it was loud. And also, you know, I'm still an infant. I am 15 years old and everybody, you know, I'm tiny and there's a lot of people there who are, you know, in their late teens and early twenties. And these are like people who shave like adults, <laughs> you know, and there's, there's a lot of them and they're aggressive and, you know, half of them are drunk and, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it was a very intimidating environment. You get, you stick your head out the door, a bunch of guys want to beat your ass and the police hate you. I mean, it's just, it's really not a good club to join um, just because you didn't want to be left out. <laughs> I really should have thought it through. <laughs> And I guess it was like a weird, you know, like that's still like a point before, you know, ultimately your scene takes over, right? Like there's still the hangover of that limp record scene that's still around and kind of the older DC scene. Right. Well, have you seen Punk the Capital? I haven't seen it yet. I really want to see it. You should. It's great. I just, I just saw it for the first time recently. And, uh, um, there's, it, it speaks to that, that kind of changing of the guard. And yes, that is true. I mean, this was when, the bands that were, I would characterize as more experimental or new wave kind of ruled the, uh, the non-rock and roll uh, Washington, D.C. music venues. And we were just these kind of, you know, people either were supportive because they liked the idea of the art we were creating, though we certainly didn't consider that. We didn't, we didn't think we were making art. We really, you know, we were just fucking mad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we would never think of something that sophisticated, but mm -hmm. a lot of these people, uh, you know, either liked the effort or thought we were horrible and should never play. But in general, no one thought that we were a threat. Huh? Huh? I think we were a, a, a minor threat. I got it. A little thing. <laughs> no, no, but this is true. I didn't put the fact that minor threat meant minor, like, as in, you know, not of age, until maybe 1984. And this is where I'm in a band where the guy's singing, you know, I'm a minor at heart. <laughs> and I honestly just saw it as, I thought the name was kind of dumb. Like, what do you mean minor threat? How about call it threat or something? Like, I didn't really know what he was talking about. For the entire time I was in the band. Think about this. But once again, we've established you're not listening. So explain to people a lot about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just insane. And, and I've never been a lyric guy, honestly. You know, I didn't really care what he was saying. I mean, I'm, I'm more about the rhythm. Yeah. But I did not know. I didn't, whether, I, look, I'm not a complete idiot. I'm sure that I understood the concept, but I really just apply it mentally. When I said minor threat, I always was thinking a little thing, like we're just a, we're just a small, a small discomfort. 
just didn't do, I, you know, no wonder we fucking broke up. Who would want to play with me? Well, you know what? You were doing your job, Brian. Like, believe me, the riffs, the riffs still cut. So that's all that matters. <laughs> well, Ian wrote, Ian wrote most of the songs, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you played them, damn it. You played them better than anyone else could. Damn right. I did. I was the best goddamn bass player in that band, except for the guy who played for a while who was actually better than me. But there was, you know, other than him. I another scene that was kind of happening at the same time was the uh was that kind of like bloody uh mannequin orchestra and um yep. United Mutation scene. Like how did that stuff yeah. kind of fit in? Because ultimately you would do Dag Nasty with some of the people from Bloody Mannequin Orchestra. Right. Well, those were uh, those scenes. Uh, United Mutation Zone was Virginia, and uh, Bloody Mannequin Orchestra, and that kind of, and those guys were uh, Maryland, and they weren't like super suburban. They were just not in DC itself. And at that time, you know, the it, you just um, we're talking about a distance. Each each of these, like in Virginia, we're talking about these guys lived um, maybe four miles from the 930 club mm -hmm. in downtown DC and the Bethesda guys, same thing. It's like, but this seemed like, well, they're from Fayetteville. And then these guys, they're from, uh, they're from Moose Jaw. Have you, have you, have you ever seen what they do? You know, we just didn't, I mean, it, it, it was like this, it was this revelation that there were other people just like us doing the exact same thing who like, it wasn't, they were, and none of them sound like, they weren't just like, we want to be like the DC people. They didn't give a fuck about the DC people. Like they, they wanted to, they did their own thing. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that was really cool. And they, it, it melded seamlessly because more, you know, this was still a time when you're just excited that, that there's, wait, there's another band. There's people playing music that are like us and are doing their own thing, I can't wait to go see them. And, you know, we could have we have bills that have more than three bands and, you know, every band won't have someone's brother in it. Wow, this is good. This is really cool. And this is still also a time, I mean, if you can imagine this, where if I'm like on the bus coming home from school and I see somebody who's dressed punk, I would go talk to them. Mm -hmm. Like, Hello, friend. I see you too are a believer. Like, like it was so rare that you would actually like approach people like, like, what, what are you up to? Like, it was crazy. I mean, think about that now, you know? I think it's almost <laughs> back to that now, right? Like, it's almost like now, like if I saw someone in like, uh, like a cool shirt, it's almost like, oh, cool. Like as a 38 year old, oh, sorry, as a 40 year old person, I would not be doing this. But I mean, I imagine young people would be, you know, back to approaching people because it's almost like it feels like it's more culty again. But I don't think that people, their tribal identification is not based on music so much anymore. Yeah, exactly. Okay, totally. Um, and mind you, let me be the Gen X guy who knows all about Z. Oh, wait, I don't know shit. <laughs> I don't know what they do. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not even going to, I'm not, I'm not even going to bother pretend to be the guy who yells at the cloud on this. I'm just not going to like, there's a, there are people who are doing things that I don't know anything about. And I probably shouldn't know. So I cannot characterize their interactions, but I will say that also that this is a product of the scarcity of people who looked like us then. I mean, this was, you know, this was obviously, um, you know, there's not, uh, 
you don't get to see punk rock on TV or on the internet or, you know, it, it, it's, it's so weird that it, the weirdness in and of itself kind of makes you approach somebody. And it was, um, I think it's just because there were so few people, you know? Mm-hmm. But like the DC style of dress is so, you know, not, not that it's conservative in any sort of political sense, but like in terms of like a punk rock sense, especially even what you're describing as when you first got into it and you're wearing your mom's pants and kind of like, yeah. you know, dressing more punk. When did that stylistic shift happen? Do you think? Um, well, I think that, I mean, I can't speak for everybody else, but um, for me, it it just was like the punk being super punk looking started to feel kind of clowny mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And also it was um, it was uncomfortable. You know, I mean, it, you know, having to, you know, really having to put on all this shit to go and do stuff yeah. is a pain in the ass. Have you worn a spike leather jacket in summer with your fucking pants with straps tying them together in Frankenstein boots with shit in your hair? I'd, come on. It's, it's you know, it, it's a commitment. And <laughs> so there was just the, you know, the functionality of it because the DC thing, you know, we were skateboarders and just not really, um, I think it was a, just a different thing. I think that, that, um, that, that fashion aspect of it died out really quickly and early pictures of everybody, you'll see that, but it sort of turns into, uh, a bunch of guys in ripped gas station jackets with shaved heads, um, which in actually was a whole lot more menacing than, you know, the Sid Vicious guys at that time. It was because it, you know, it, ver- it verged on psychopath versus, you know, um, anarchist or, you know, f- punk fan. And it just kind of, it just kind of became its own thing. And I, I don't, I don't, rec- you know, I don't really recall the seismic change, but I do know it was great when I, um, when I stopped wearing boots and wore vans, it was so much more comfortable. I totally get that. Um, what you know, a lot's made of the violence in the DC scene, and I guess famously, you all would reject the violence that was going on in the and sort of the general, you know, vibe of shows and during Revolution Summer and stuff. How much of that is is myth that's kind of been put on, it and how much is real? Like, was the violence something that you remember being particularly brutal or being a part of the scene in any sort of real way? No, it was a huge. Well, I mean, initially it was, you know. Uh, 80 to 83, uh, basically it was, the violence was, it was not, um, it was not psychopathic or vicious, mm-hmm. uh, shows are violent places. And a lot of these guys like to fight. I mean, Ian McKay used to beat the shit out of people if someone provoked him or tried to fuck with his little brother. In other words, Ian was an aggressive dude. And who liked to fight justified, um, but not as, you know, he was not in any way a, an aggressor. He was just more of a reactor and kind of everybody was like this. And there's a lot of, I mean, the, again, I kind of wasn't involved because I was so small. Like this is still, you know, the guys who are 18 when I'm 15, 19 when I'm 16, um, they're the ones who have to fight the drunk Marines who are like yelling at girls, like punk girls in front of a venue. It's not me. Like Mm 
I'm trying to sit in somebody's lap, you know, <laughs> on a ladies' man. I mean, that's really kind of more my thing. But this was this was a this was just kind of a day to day thing, and it really wasn't um, the violence. I think, and what kind of changed the tone for a lot of people. I think it might have been as early as '84 when Ian just said, "Ian, just stop fighting." He's like, "I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm not doing it." Um, maybe '84 or '85. I'd have to ask Ian. See, why don't you just call him? Why are you even talking to me? I, I know him. I can hook you up. Oh, I've done. Believe me, there has been a, a punishment of Ian McKay that wasn't recorded, but it went on for like about seven hours one day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's t- totally worth it. It's good. Um, but it was basically what, you know, the violence that people are referring to is that the scene got much bigger exponentially. And by 83, you used to have shows where there would be 150 people, 300 people coming. And by 83, 84, you've got a thousand people. 750 people and there are people there now who are there for the spectacle and you don't it's not all of these people with these like-minded interests who are who are you know musically driven or interested in the subculture there are people who are just freaks who want to go there and beat people up um and it becomes you know the, the party is spoiled and i think uh the everyone kind of acts like revolution summer was was some sort of um you know it was it was some sort of discord dictated uh, seasonal you know this now folks we're going to call this revolution summer now here's your job you flyer you buy the flowers you make the big set lists and paint the band name on it and then make sure the song titles are all one word make you really you know I mean it wasn't like this mm-hmm. it was uh, <laughs> it was revolution summer was like kind of a tongue in cheek joke um, some people from people who were just you know who all worked at the same like there was this um like community center that the dc public the dc government paid for and you could some people got jobs there and it was right by wilson high school and basically it's like an after-school job and they have you know they have a bunch of copiers and people are making flyers and and kind of joking around and one of them is like i i don't know if it was rights of spring might have been it's just like it's revolution summer and that's just kind of like clicked but as if it was some sort of groundswell or some sort of you know ethical change that had been dictated on high but no it was just because that summer it was funny um but it also coincided with the fact that people uh people were at least the musicians and the people who had been there a long time were really um looking to play alternative venues um where this kind of uh this kind of aggression wasn't really going to be, you know, in play. And basically, you know, I think that the music changed too. Uh, it's definitely uh, more cerebral and definitely tempo wise, I think, uh, and influence wise, it just kind of, it's softened in its own way. I think it's, uh, it's still incredibly aggressive, but it's just a different delivery. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of the, the people who were just coming because they had seen the episode of Quincy and, you know, (laughs) those people weren't really interested in, in seeing, um, you know, embrace. Yeah. It's, you always hear, you know, other people that have been on the podcast talk about like when the circle jerks would come to town or when the dead Kennedys would come to town, it would seem to bring out uh, like a, a, a broader punk audience that wouldn't necessarily be all the people that got it. Going, yeah, for sure. When you guys would go on tour, um, like, you know, you'd be playing these other scenes and you're saying like earlier, like, you know, when you find these other 
punks, it would be like a revelation. What was it like going to, you know, Boston or New York and seeing sort of the different ways punk was being taken up? Well, it's fascinating. Um, New York had been punk for a long time. I mean, they, you know, there are many who will argue and it might be, I might argue with you that New York invented punk rock. And so not only are, you know, it was, uh, it was just intimidating and New York people were, you know, that if you, that stereotypical New Yorker that you see on sitcoms, when you're talking about the punk guys, who a lot of them are just, you know, kids who are from shitty neighborhoods, um, who, you know, there, there wasn't any private school punks at, in the uh, New York hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. And it was real dudes who talked like that and who, you know, a lot of kids were um, just you know, almost homeless. I mean, it was a way more hardcore scene than ours. And it was also much bigger. And it was, you know, I met a lot of great people. um, But it was definitely intimidating. It was a whole, a whole different thing. I mean, we, I I just felt, you know, that how I didn't realize at the time, but I mean, it's just how fortunate a lot of us were is that, you know, our, uh, our lives in DC, just, you know, going to a DC public school, was absolutely nothing like going to, you know, PS 1025 in, you know, 159th street. I mean, it just, it's a whole different life experience. Um, so it was fun and wild and intimidating. And Boston was a smaller scene, you know, both New York and Boston also had real big music scenes for a long period of time. Whereas as DC, as you said, it was like, it was go-go and some bluegrass, but there wasn't really a like an alternative. It just wasn't the same. I mean, Boston had the colleges and they had all of this this history. I mean, you got Aerosmith, you know, and you got, <laughs> of course, you got Boston, uh, who were from there. And uh, I mean, it's just a it's more rock and roll town. And there's you know, it's it's not. It, it again, it all feels more big league than DC. Mm-hmm. Um, and the real shock was going to play the first minor threat tours where we would be playing in like the Carolinas or, you know, just in little, in playing little shows to 50 people. And you just, they're like, it's just amazing that they're punks in Raleigh. You're like, whoa, this is so rad that there's these little clusters of people like us in these places that, you know, that you just would not really think of. Um, and we played all those places. And that was what was really more eye-opening to me, is that just finding these like-minded people in the in the least likely places. Well, it's funny because you say, like, you know, DC is kind of like, you know, not as big league when it comes to rock music. But, you know, when it comes to hardcore music, from all what people say, you guys were ahead of the curve. Like, Minor Threat would kind of show up. And, you know, like in Boston and in certainly in New York and kind of influence the next wave of, of bands and kids almost. Well, it, but that, well, that's great to, to, I mean, I, I suppose that is true, but it's certainly not what we were thinking while we were actually performing the duty. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, you know, we're just, it's, it's funny because in retrospect, you know, I mean, I'm obviously keenly aware of the influence that minor threat has had, but at the time, I mean, I kind of joke about this, but it was my after-school band, and we really did not have this mission statement. You know, all of this kind of came posthumously. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we wanted to be great, and we loved playing, um, 
but it was always like we didn't really think we were like bringing you know here's the new thing we weren't we weren't, we weren't going in there with flags waving like it was more like you know cool we can play cbgb's i've always wanted to go to cbgb's that's really cool you know it wasn't really you weren't thinking that way at the time what about with Dagnasty? Was there kind of a mentality shift or is it still sort of the same principles that you're going into Dagnasty with? No, Dagnasty is different. Uh, Dagnasty was uh, – Dagnasty, I wanted to form a band that would uh, be able to tour and that people would like that would also draw um, from the success of Minor Threat because now Minor Threat is not – you know, is much bigger than they ever were, than we ever were when we were a band Mm -hmm. and I had kind of fucked around pretending to go to college. I was a motorcycle courier. I played in the meat men for a little bit. I really wasn't seriously being a musician. I, I, I just was kind of, I don't know. I was kind of wasting time and, um, it just sort of hit me. Um, I guess in 85, I'm like, fuck this. Like, I need to, I want to get out here. I want to get back out there. I want to go to California. I want to be able to do this and I'm going to put a band together. And I basically, I knew Roger and Colin from Buddy Mannequin Orchestra and Colin was a great drummer and Roger was a great bass player. And they also had been playing together forever. So when you're going to form a band, you can't do better than having a drummer and bass player who've worked together for years and who are best friends. Um, And Sean Brown had never sung in his life. He was just a cool dude. Mm Mm-hmm. And he went to shows and he was fucking, he looked great. He was really nice. He, um, he had, you know, he just, his dance was cool. His whole thing was cool. And at the time, you know, I'm not really thinking about, um, you know, vocal harmonies here. I'm thinking about, we should put together a really, really good punk band and go and just get moving. Like, let's get moving. Let's make records. Let's get, I wanted to get back into the thick of it. And I had been drifting for a couple of years. And that's, that was Dagnasty's mission statement. It was just to, you know, I wanted to do, I wanted to pick up where I had left off when Minor Threat broke up. We had just gotten to the point where we could just, hey, we want to go on tour and we could put together a tour and, and go and come back. And we never really made any money, but we didn't lose any. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was it. You could do a successful tour is like, my God, you know, we're alive. Everything's cool. Each guy's got 300 bucks. The van still runs because we had to get it. You know, I mean, just those things. That was that was success. You mentioned the meat men earlier. When do you remember meeting Tesco? Uh, when Minor Threat went, we met Tesco in Michigan when Minor Threat first went to play. I think we met him on our very first tour. It was well, it wasn't a tour. It was kind of this. It was this aborted run. We were. It's so crazy to think about this, but I think we were. It was eighty one, and us and Youth Brigade decided that we were going to go on tour, and we had I think a show booked maybe in Detroit, um, and maybe one other show. Like I don't know the, but the idea was that we were just going to go and then we're going to kind of keep going like we're just gonna we're just gonna go drive around and play shows we'll just pick them up like the fuck and the guitar player for youth brigade took his parents rv 
And we had my car. I was I just turned 16 and we had my car, which was a, you know, a ancient Volvo wagon. And Ian drove his car, which was a, a Plymouth Duster that it looked like it had been, you know, through the apocalypse, it looked like Mad Max. And we're just in our cars and 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 Tom's mom's motorhome. And we're going to go tour. It's just bananas. And what basically happens is I, I don't remember, you know, I don't remember exactly any of the sequence of events or how it worked out. But apparently Tom's parents called and said, you have to bring the van back or we're calling the cops. <laughs> and that was the end of the Youth Brigade tour. And then we're still, well, we're still here with our two cars. So we're going to go. And we went to we went to Michigan and um, we stayed at Tesco's house. And I, you know, I, you know, I hate to be a broken record, but you know, this is a question for someone who remembers things um, or the internet. But <laughs> that's how we met Tesco is our first sort of aborted attempt. And I know we played we played a Detroit show, and I think we uh, we played a show in Windsor in Ontario, just over the bridge. Absolutely. Who'd you play with in Windsor? Do you remember Flesh Columns? No, that wouldn't be for the Flesh Columns. No, I imagine. Oh no, I don't know. Probably, been, uh, I don't know at all. Okay. It's so weird to think about Windsor as a, a hub, you know, and it's always kind of been a hub for punk and hardcore, but I guess it's that proximity to Detroit that these bands I, like the fact that you guys is, played there, for instance. My friend, there was no scene. This is we're playing in like a sports bar in the, by, a pool, <laughs> by a pool table and some well-meaning kid must have like convinced someone to let him to like run his own little show there. I mean, this was not we were not uh, there. It was not well attended. <laughs> I think that's also where Negative Approach had their seven-inch release party, if I'm not mistaken. Could be true. That makes sense. <laughs> so yeah. it does have some cultural significance, even though not very many people were there to see it happen. Correct. Yes. Okay. And you know what's great about it? And as a Canadian, you'll love this. So they didn't really know what to do with us going in and out of the country. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I don't. all I will tell you is this. As a result of that trip, I have a uh, Canadian. What's the, what's your social security called? A sin number. I have a sin number <laughs> from that trip. I have, <laughs> I have a Canadian. I have the card with a sin number with my name on it. Uh, that was the that was the, whatever happened. That's what I wound up with. I still have it. <laughs> that might make you a citizen. So if you ever want to move up, I think you're allowed to. I think the last thing you need is one more fucking American moving up there because <laughs> they've had it. Yeah. No, I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I, I mentioned this at some point to, to like later in later life um, when, we, when we had like managers or I don't remember what band I was in. And it was, you know, some lawyer explained to me that the worst possible thing I could do was mention that. <laughs> if, I'm, if anything to do with going and working in Canada, best just leave that part out of it. Just don't. Don't bring your card, son. Just, <laughs> just, just use this paper I'm going to give you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's better to like let the border guards do all the talking. I found. Yeah, yeah. Experience. So I never, I never got to whip it out and, and let them know <laughs> that I was, I was one of them. Uh, do you remember playing with Why Die? You know, that's a band that I've always been kind of obsessed with. But and I know there's definitely footage of you guys playing with them. But it just, you have any memories of playing with them? Um, well, what's the singer's name? Jackal. Yeah. Okay. I remember him. 
Um, this was Chuck Treese wasn't in that band, was he? No, no. But he, he would have been. He would have been at that show, though. I'm sure. But he was at that show. But what was his band? McRad. McRad. That's later. That's like '84, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. I, in other words, yes, I have a memory of this. Definitely in Philadelphia. Um, but what I really remember about those first things was meeting Chuck because Chuck was the fucking Ian Mackay of Philadelphia. Like he was, he was just, he was making shit happen. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that I do remember. And then of course later, you know, there were, there's lots of, you know, through Dagnasty and later stuff. Did, were you, did you go to that Saturday Night Live fear show? Yeah, I did. And it was a, it was kind of tough. I was, I was supposed to play that night with government issue. I was playing guitar in government issue and, um, or was I playing bass? Whatever. No, I was playing bass. I don't know what the fuck I was doing. I think <laughs> I was playing guitar. No, I was playing guitar in government issue and Tom Lyle was playing bass and we had a show at the Chancery in DC, which was like a, you know, kind of a medium, small size, like bar, like, like Irish bar that would have bands. Um, and I decided I'd rather go see Saturday Night Live than play the show. And that did not go over well with John Stab <laughs> at all. And I just was like, fuck that. I'm going. And I got in a car with everybody and we were going to go. Fuck. I mean, come on. You know, it's like when fucking John Belushi invites you to come and slam dance at the Fear concert and they're going to take care of you. What's it? You know, OK, you guys can hear Teenager in a Box next week um but that really caused some problems and uh i i might be mistaken but i might i think i played after that but i think i kind of got thrown out of the band and tom started playing guitar (laughs) (laughs) like i'm i'm loose on the timeline i know that that did not go over well i know that tom actually wanted i think tom wound up playing guitar at that show which was the kiss of death because i think then they figured out tom could play guitar and do the same job i was doing and actually care (laughs) <laughs> so um anyway i i don't think i lasted long in government issue after that i'm not i i think lyle i think i got saved by lyle coming back from college and starting minor threat back up I, that might that actually fits into the timeline better i think that might have been what happened and you got to see the fear on saturday Night live show which has got to be one of the all-time saturday Night live performances right yes it is and when you watch it now um when there are occasionally they show the overhead direct looking down camera shot mm-hmm. i think they show it a couple times in one of them there is a tiny boy with spiked red hair in a sleeveless blue brooks brothers button-up shirt <laughs> scurrying across the stage right behind her in front of leaving like i was i was making my play for the dive <laughs> and I'm, I'm caught you know for for posterity in uh when you see that footage very proud to have been there. It was awesome. Uh, another kind of legendary show that actually Alec Mackay talked about when he was on this podcast uh, a while ago was the DOA show that happened in DC, like a certain DOA show that just, you know, stood out in his mind as one of the all time great shows. Were you at that show? Yes. And that was at Woodlawn High School. And that was a, uh, it was basically in a high school gym. And uh, I was just actually, um, 
I was actually talking to Ian about this recently, and he's like, you know, they kind of just rolled into town and they didn't have a show. And some kids at Woodlawn were like, well, we can ask the school. Like, like I think DOA was kind of pulling maybe a, a more sophisticated version of our tour with the guy's mom's <laughs> RV. Where they're kind of like had shows booked at least they had a framework, but they were kind of loosely filling them in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this Woodlawn show at this high school was uh, was a fill in, and uh, it was fucking amazing because it's DOA, and it's the best DOA. It's fucking Chuck Biscuits, Randy Rampage, Dave Gregg, Joey Shithead, just the best band, the best era, and it's in a high school gym, and there's probably seventy people there. And they're standing right in front of us on the floor with no stage under the basketball net. It's funny because everyone you talk to that saw that band live during that era just talks about how they're one of the one of the top bands, but they're kind of they're kind of forgotten in the pantheon of of top bands. Like you know, certainly in the terms that you look at, you know, Minor Threat of the Circle Jerks or or Dead Kennedys, or maybe that's just my Canadian inferiority complex coming out. I don't know. I think that DOA, the only thing they suffered from is is having an incredibly long career with many, many records that, though lyrically were very important, were not musically the same level. And the thing is, is the reason why we remember the Dead Kennedys and Minor Threat is the bands broke up, mm-hmm. like, while they were still good. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the real Dead Kennedys, no offense to whoever Brandon Cruz or, you know, Mickey Mouse, whoever's singing with, with um, them now, but, or, you know what I'm talking about? The, the real, the real thing. Yeah. And the Jello, the Jello Kennedys. Yeah. yeah. yeah the Jello Kennedys and the same, you know, I mean the jerks, it, it kind of works. It, it's on and off with the jerks, but you do have the first two jerks records and then they're over for, you know, a, a pretty good amount of time too. And it, um, you know, it's just, some of them work because they aren't in, there aren't any more. Like they, they just stopped at the right time. I mean, Minor Threat was, you know, the best example in the world. Is it like you listen to the Minor Threat discography and there really aren't any bad songs because we stopped. <laughs> like we're done. <laughs> yeah. You know, we fucking played for two and a half years and that's it. I don't know the, the show count, but it's got to be like 40, something like that. I mean, you know, that, that kind of helps build a, me- a myth when you don't fuck it up by being bad (laughs) (laughs) what about the meat men how did you you know come to join yes the meat men were kind of tesco first of all tesco is a performance artist he's not a musician and uh we met tesco in detroit and then tesco and his wife uh his wife gerda moved to dc and tesco's first thing he did this like this 12 inch that a bunch of us were on this tesco v in the in the meat crew or whatever it was tesco um I don't remember what it's called, but you if you're a record guy, you will. There's like yeah. a Tesco V solo record, and I'm on it, and Bert, and Ian, and Rich, and a bunch of guys. And then he started uh, – the Meatman just came up like he was just – I'm going to do Meatman shows, and do you want to play guitar? And I would play guitar. Um, but it was like they were cabarets, and it wasn't like a touring band. I mean, Tesco had a full-time job, and it was more just like let's let's have fun with Tesco. And we had like, you know, there was costumes and props and it wasn't really like, I never thought of it really as a band. It was certainly not, you know, was not, I did not, I did not count that in my, uh, my quiver of, you know, 
musical endeavors. Yeah, it's not quite the same thing. So, and like, I guess though that kind of leads into uh, joining Doggy Style because I guess that's another band that's kind of like less serious, but it was a serious band. They did play shows. Well, I didn't really join Doggy Style at all. What happened was is that I, Dagnasty, went on tour with the descendants on the enjoy tour in 86 and i became really good friends with doug Carrion, who was the the bass player in the descendants at the time and basically um doug sort of convinced me that what i needed to do was not really do that not do this dagnasty thing and we sh- i should move out to california and he and i were going to start a band with two guys from doggy style who were brad xavier and uh lou Gaez. and what we were going to do, which it's at the time, I mean, actually it doesn't sound so ridiculous in retrospect, what he wanted to do, Brad wanted to do was kind of a chili pepper thing, but this is in 1986. So it's, if it had worked, the timing would have been pretty great Mm -hmm. because the peppers weren't, you know, I mean, first of all, I I cannot stand the red hot chili peppers, (laughs) cannot stand and I hate the music and I can't, I mean, nice guys, whatever. Everyone's a nice guy, but, you know, put, put that fucking strap down. Um, but I was just this, it was just this whole thing. It was like this doggy, stop, doggy, this band didn't have a name at all. And we were doing this kind of half descendants kind of stuff and then half sort of chili pepper stuff that Lou and Brad were really into. And, as horrible as it sounds, what wound up happening is that we didn't have a name and I think we had to play. We got an offer for like to probably, it was probably some enormous sum of money, like maybe a thousand dollars to play somewhere at some event or some school or I, I, I'm totally fuzzy. The, the, that era is really, you know, I, I discovered marijuana. Okay. So let's <laughs> right. That, that era is a little fuzzy to me as you know uh but we needed a name and so we called it doggy rock much to my objection and it was i guess they were kind of trying to play off the enormous success of the band doggy style <laughs> and the fact that we were playing rock music um and that's what this band was and i mean i remember the show i was like i was like i had like fluorescent paint i was no shirt fluorescent shorts like some sort of inflatable Halloween head on my uh, on the top of my head, and like like uh, war paint, fluorescent war paint, and we had dancers, and it was just a fucking just a shit show. It was just so fucking embarrassing. And uh, basically, we did this doggy rock thing, and I think we maybe played one or two times, and uh, and I decided like you guys are fucking crazy. I'm not. This is awful. I'm not doing this. I'm going back home and I'm going to start Dag Nasty back up. Fuck you. <laughs> and Doug is like, well, hold on a second. I mean, why don't I go back with you? And and I'll be in Dag Nasty too. I'm like, what the fuck? Did, why did you do all of this? Couldn't you have just stayed in the descendants? And then we like, look at all this time we've wasted. But we recorded the fucking, we recorded all the songs we had and we kind of left them with Brad and Lou and Brad and Lou were the people who the founders of doggy style. And so they just put it out as a doggy style record. And the other guys who were still in doggy style put out a record in called doggy style as well at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like the temptations. 
you know, like, like it was just so, so dumb. And Doug and I moved back to DC and, uh, I summarily kicked Roger out of Dag Nasty and replaced him with Doug, which is, you know, what friends do. And Colin, <laughs> Colin was up for it. And we had Peter singing and, uh, we, we kind of fucked around and wound up moving. I mean, it, the timeline is, is a little weird, but we played and then Colin decided he, Colin actually was going to leave and play with Ian and what was going to be Fugazi. Um, and, but he didn't really want to do that either. And he wound up going to college and Doug and I got another drummer, Scott, and then we played a lot and then we all moved back to LA <laughs> and we're dag nasty. Now we're in dag nasty and we live in Hermosa beach, California. And, uh, you know, that that was that was something I did. <laughs> oh. Yeah, they're not all they're not all the best moves. No. Did at one point did also you you form something with Danzig? Ian mentioned during that seven hour punishment session. Yes. Oh yeah. No, this was the great minor threat escape. It's like so the the end of minor threat basically comes from a lack of communication and the fact that. Uh, Lyle and I want to move. We we're like, okay, you know, now that we're grownups, we're now that we're 18 and 19, we're really, we think we should actually become a real big band. And we've been listening to you two a lot. And so I think it's time for minor threat to move up. And of course, Ian Mackay is like, you're crazy. I'm not doing any of that. I'm having none of that. I mean, we, we don't really realize as always, we don't realize that what Ian was doing wasn't just a band he was doing um he was doing something much bigger than that he had a this was a philosophical thing this is what discord was about it was about diy and it was about you know community and a minor threat was a portion of it um but for us it was just our band and we're like well you know let's get bigger and we wrote a bunch of songs and they you know some of them were okay and some of them weren't and they weren't really appropriate for ian to sing and what basically happened is that ian just we Ian just kind of stopped coming to practice. And after that happened for long enough, Lyle and I decided like, well, fuck this. Let's go. Um, Misfits broke up. Let's just call Glenn. We don't need, we don't need this Mackay character. We're going to, we're going to go, you know, let's, let's go super group. Bam. Let's get Glenn. Mm -hmm. And so we called him up and <laughs> we were going to get Glenn and we called Chuck Biscuits and he was kind of on the fence and it's all fuzzy, but I remember that at, at one, we had one practice with, it was Glenn, me and Lyle and Graham from Negative Approach and Jeff Nelson from Minor Threat. Holy shit. What a band. <laughs> in, um, in my mom's house. Um, and we had, uh, but we didn't really do shit, you know, it's just so <laughs> fucking, it's weird. And then Chuck Biscuits was a no go. And then we got, our friend Eric, who was also playing in the Meat Men, who did not have a pedigree, but he was a really great drummer. And so we did – that was me, Lyle, Graham, Negative Approach. And Graham, by the way, we lured Graham to D.C. for this. Like, you're okay, you don't need that Negative Approach anymore. Look what we're doing, <laughs> right? And, of course, he moves, moves to D.C., and that's where he still lives now. He's just completely – like we did uh, – you know, so we were going to do this band with – I mean, we it, Glenn had the name. It was Sam Hain. But we really didn't – We, uh, I mean, Glenn, I think, after playing with us three or four times, was like, yeah, I don't I don't want to do this. I mean, I, he didn't need us. And 
Glenn again was doing his own kind of, I mean, Glenn is, uh, I think he's a fucking genius and a great songwriter. And he was doing this whole different thing and he didn't require like a bleached haired private school, smart ass kid who likes you too, to be his guitar player. Like, he needed a demon to be his guitar player. And on bass, he would also need a demon. And it was like, like to do what his vision was had nothing to do with us. And so he basically was, like, eh, yeah, I'm, it, it was the same kind of thing. It's like, we just, I mean, we didn't really break up. We just didn't really talk very much anymore. <laughs> and Lyle stayed on a little longer than I did. And I think that's because Lyle had his hair dyed black. So... <laughs> He could pass, and he actually made it onto the Sam Hain record, and he played a show as Sam Hain with them. Um, but it was out long before then, and so Graham was now in the Meat Men because you know, well, sorry, you moved out here. We got we got the Meat Men, <laughs> and he did that forever. <laughs> so it all worked out. Yeah, everybody, it all worked out, and everything's cool. But yeah, but again, when you look at this, you know, you. People think that like, so you were in Sam Hain. It's like, again, we're fucking children and no one thinks this is, you know, like it's, it doesn't seem, it, it looks great on paper, but at the time we were just fucking around, mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't just seeing what worked and didn't and really not knowing what we wanted and not knowing how to do it. And also not having any real respect for what we'd achieved mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> at that time. You know, I just didn't really, I, I just, you know, well, you learn as you young. get older. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 Yeah, but that's not the only excuse because there were a lot of people who were young who actually did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> was it the same kind of sound that Sam Hain would wind up doing or was it like different in the beginning? Um, it was kind of the same thing. I yeah. mean, I don't really remember what it was. I think we had um, – I, I, I'm sure Glenn had songs. I think that we had some things. Um Lyle might have like a cassette tape of a practice. I, I think there's a cassette tape of a practice with me, Lyle, and Jeff that Glenn was not singing because we didn't have a, any way to sing, or he may not have even have been there. Okay. Um, of of us doing stuff at my mom's house, but I don't. I don't have it. Lyle might have it. That's a one. That's an amazing thing about that DC scene is how well documented it all is. Yeah, it is. It's incredible the amount of uh, you know how uh how those guys have everything i mean ian and jeff were you know archivists and collectors and um the amount of stuff that they have and just i think there was just a general vibe in dc too i mean dc is kind of a wonky town and it was like you know the kids are are children of either you know government people or military kids or people who are in the news media i mean i was a tv kid um, you know, and that just is it's just kind of a different way. I think people just were more, uh, you know, just kind of nerdy and, and keepy kind of things. It wasn't really like our scene wasn't really like a fuck. Yeah, man. It wasn't, that wasn't really it. It was a little more, a little more cerebral, yeah, just it's barely. It's like an archivist <laughs> mentality almost. Exactly. Yeah. And also a lot of people, I mean, there were, people who realized that what was happening was something special. Yeah. Um, and those people collected stuff and I didn't, I don't have anything. And, <laughs> you know, I, I do clearly remember selling my, uh, my insanely good damned collection of, I had, you know, I had 
probably the second best damn collection, you know, on the East Coast. And I sold it to Bleaker Bob's in L.A. because I had to pay rent when I was living in L.A. Um, at the end of Dagnasty. And I sold all my Discord stuff, like everything. Um, <laughs> just to, like, well, okay, if you're going to give me $50 for that silkscreen test pressing, I'm not going to say no. Uh, and only, you know, fortunately, I mean, I, I thought I had gotten rid of everything, but I do have some things now um, because I had been smart enough to give them a lot of records to my parents. Mm-hmm. And both my parents have passed now, but that's how I got back some of this stuff is so I have, you know, I have not everything, but I have enough minor threat stuff, at least all the discord stuff. I mean, I had every discord record and all of that, you know, but these are things you don't dwell on now. Yeah. Because at a time there was at a time when that was the, that's what you did. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to play guitar for a living in Los Angeles in 1987. So there you go. Well, and if you lived it, why do you need the souvenir? That was my thinking at the time. Now I just <laughs> like the idea of it. I, I, I think it's pretty cool to have that, like the silkscreen test pressing that I gave my dad. Yeah. Um, he had it just in a bookshelf with like a bunch of other shit. And so it's all faded and like he left the record in it and it's a little warped and faded. And I just put it up in a, room in my house i just put it in a bookshelf full of junk like like it's just kind of in the back you know next to a sid vicious doll like it's just the fact that you know it's cool because of the connection to my dad and all that but and i like that it's a really super rare record that people would freak out about and of course i would never sell it but it's it's just funny i don't know i like looking at it it makes me feel good yeah no it would make me feel good to have it in my house too but for completely different reasons obviously (laughs) yeah whatever (laughs) Do you remember the first time you heard Bad Religion? Um, yes, I do. I heard Bad Religion um, when uh, Michael Hampton and I went to res- Yesterday and Today Records to see our friend Skip Groff. And for some reason that I think uh, we came home and I remember we went to his we went to his house and we had Jealous Again and we had the first Bad Religion record were the two things that we had bought. And I don't know who had bought what. I think I had bought Jealous Again and he had bought the Bad Religion record. And we like Jealous Again a lot more. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm going to say. And, and, uh, but I was really taken. I liked, um, I liked Bad Religion. I liked Only Gonna Die. Um, I thought that was a really great song. Absolutely. And, um, I was really turned. I thought Greg's voice was great. It's just that the band was a little ramshackle. And so it didn't stick with me. But I remember liking Bad Religion. But when you're trying to compare the first Bad Religion record to Jealous Again, which is already like hyper fucking best of Black Flag era. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? You can't. It's not fair. (laughs) Chavo. I mean, come on. (laughs) Well, and also Bad Religion also like, you know, it's a band that developed in in such a way like, you know, like from that single to where you guys are now, it's it's, it's a, a, a huge gulf. Well, I think so too. I mean, the songwriting, I, what's really nice about, I mean, just it's Brett and Greg have just been, are just, I think they're just great songwriters. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's really good songs on that first record, but they're just, the band isn't good enough to do them. And when 
you know, bad religion was off my radar. I like, I totally missed this whole suffer. Like when bad religion kind of came and became a thing and, uh, this suffer no control era where they got really popular, it's because they had these, the songs were even better written and they could play them. Mm-hmm. And you just, you know, that was, I'm, I, of course, I had no idea about this. I, I completely met, for me, Bad Religion, I didn't get, I didn't, Bad Religion didn't come on my radar again until Recipe for Hate, which shows you how out of it I was. But I just didn't really, you know, it just, I didn't really get it. Um, it wasn't part of my, part of my diet. Um, so it's kind of funny how everything worked out. I'm really suffers good now. <laughs> I, like I know how to play it. It's good. <laughs> did, did you guys overlap at all with Dag Nasty moving out there with like the back to the known era? No, uh, but I do know that I went, apparently I went to see, um, I saw circle one and bad religion play in LA on a day off on a minor threat tour in 1982. Okay. Because they were playing with MDC, and we we had a day off between Phoenix and an LA show, and so we went to see that show, and so apparently I saw Bad Religion there, but uh, there was no I had no other uh, Bad Religion. I know they I didn't go to the show, but on Suffer they played they played here in DC, and I think I was home. I was I was living in LA, but I think I was home. It was some. It was, it was in the winter and I must have been home visiting my mom or it might have been around the holidays because I think they played while I was in town, but I just didn't go to the show, um, which I I like point out often. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I didn't really have a, you know, the, the bad religion thing came back into my my purview. I was uh, I was dating a woman who worked at Epitaph and she had a pre-release copy of Recipe for Hate. And this was in 1992. Two, maybe late 92, I would think, mm-hmm. if, if that came out in 93. Um, unlike when it's talking about Epitaph, you're going to have to ask Brett because he remembers everything. And so there's there's always someone in my life who's like, well, you should really talk to the smart guy who remembers everything. But uh, he would be able to tell you exactly when this happened. But um, And I had this cassette and Recipe for Hate blew me away. And I remember specifically thinking, you motherfucker, if you just had been smart enough not to break up Dag Nasty in 1985 or whatever, you know, the first time, you would be bad religion by now. I, I really thought, I remember specifically this line of thinking like, Jesus Christ, you know, why did we fuck up? But, you know, by then I was on drugs and I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't really yeah. dwell on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, it was just kind of a funny thing that, and that's what turned me on to them. And, um, I'm, I mean, the story has been told a million times, but basically I was, I was, uh, I was friends with Hetson and Brett and living in LA. And I would, every, I would tell Hetson if, you know, Hey, if Brett ever quits, call me. And when I would see Brett, I would say the same thing. Hey, if you ever give it to Hetson, just give me a call, please give me a call. And I, I did this for real. And one day Brett quit and Hetson called. That was that's how I got in the band. Like it's funny with Los Angeles how big that city is and how many kind of like parallel scenes can exist at the same time there that have no yeah. intersection whatsoever. True, absolutely, and it's so huge. I mean, you know, it's um, it's the East Coast. Yeah, L.A. The L.A. Basin can be you know that's definitely you know your New York you know down to D.C. is to do you know. In San Diego up, 
you know, before, uh, before you get into central California. Who did Dag Nasty fit in with when you guys moved out there? Like, who were you playing shows with? We were playing shows with Uniform Choice. We were playing shows with, uh, we, we actually were pretty popular in California. Um, and I think it's because we didn't really, you know, they, we didn't, we didn't really play there. I mean, we played there with the Descendants on the Descendants tour, I think one show, but people were excited to see us. And, uh, I think I remember what it was is before we'd actually moved, we had like flown out and done some California touring when we were still based in DC, um, uh, with the Doug band. Um, and so we kind of had built up a little thing and we just played a lot of those like Fender's ballroom, like kind of bunch of bands, uh, just, you know, kind of local, like basically Orange County hardcore bands and, uh, and then in Hollywood, we would play weirder things, like play the lingerie, I think, one time, like which is sort of this sort of arty venue that, you know, this is the kind of venue, like this is where, uh, um, I don't know, I, I can't, it just we're more like esoteric. Savage Republic type bands or? Um, I'm not entirely familiar with okay. what Savage Republic Isn't it like is. Weird, like, yeah, I guess like weird RDLA bands. I'm trying to think of some exactly. other. Yeah, Celebrity right. Skin or something. I don't know it, if that's. Perfect. Thank you. No, that is exactly correct. Right. Okay. That, that, kind of thi- that kind of scene. Um, so that was basically our, our thing. But, you know, also I wasn't, uh, I mean, it was, I guess we, uh, I mean, I by the time I, I moved to Hollywood and I was living with Peter in an apartment and Doug was, I think, living at his mom's and our drummer had left Scott. I think he had gone back to D.C. because he'd had enough of it. And that's when I walked into a 7-Eleven and ran into Chris from the Big Boys, who was in Junkyard, who said, oh, hey, um, we're looking for a guitar player. I was like, oh, hi, Chris. How you been? Yes, I'll, I'll take I'll take your major label job. Thank you. I just sold all my minor threat markets for food. You What you say you're on Geffen? Geffen Records? Yeah, I think I can I think I can show up for that. What's your number? And and were they like was Junkyard at that time kind of like in that Sunset Strip scene or was there like a different scene that they're into? No, Junkyard was like Tex and the Horseheads, Raji's, Celebrity Skin, The Hangman. Junkyard was different. We didn't have makeup. We had a fat guy. Um, (laughs) I love that. I love that. Yeah, it was not. We didn't play any of those. We had nothing to do with the Sunset Strip, and they had gotten signed uh, before Guns N' Roses had blown up as kind of like a a hillbilly or like they. It was like kind of a. They were rolling the dice. Geffen was rolling the dice on this kind of Motorhead Skinnerd thing, mm-hmm. and that's when they'd signed the band. And then by the time we we're recording our record, Guns N' Roses had blown up. So naturally, we were then going to be. Well, we could be the Guns N' Roses because, you know, also it's like uh, just because we had it was just streetier, you know, it was like the the jean vests and booze and visible tattoos and just kind of dirty. You know, it wasn't it wasn't glammy. Um, the problem is, is our songs weren't as good as Guns N' Roses. <laughs> and so we did not enjoy the same success that they did. <laughs> that's, the, that's the short story. <laughs> well, you know, few bands are Guns N' Roses. They're like, uh, you know, lightning in a bottle kind of thing, too, I guess. 
I will say that Appetite for Destruction is a seriously great rock and roll record and very yes. important. Yeah. And it is uh, for them. I, I, they're nice people and good for their success, but that is the only record they have that is good. <laughs> you can make so, a, you can make a strong EP out of Use Your Illusions Volume One and Two. That's true, but it's going to all be the Izzy songs. It's going to be the Izzy songs. Yeah. Well, no, the Juju Hounds record is better than fucking Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 and 3. Well, this, is, this is something I got to ask you about because you were a member of Dead Fucking Last, right? For a minute, yeah. Which, you know, a, a fantastic band, but Dead Fucking Last, the lead singer was in a band with Izzy Stradlin. Yeah, they, they had a band, like the first band, I'm trying to remember what they called. They put it one seven inch. And they had a, a single, but Izzy was the drummer in this band. Well, you know, it's funny about DFL is that when they asked me to join DFL, I thought Adam uh, from the Beastie Boys was in it. And I, I said, okay, I'll join it because I want to play with Adam, who I don't, I wasn't really friends with, but I knew him from way back in hardcore. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I was like, and he was like, fuck, I'll be in your hardcore band, side band with the Beastie Boys guy. <laughs> And I show up and he's not there. And it turns out I'm supposed to be like whatever he did. I guess I'm supposed to do it. I don't know. It was it was a crazy time. <laughs> it was it was a crazy time. But uh, I think I played like two or three shows with them. I, I don't remember much. Well, Brian, this has been an unbelievably crazy time for me to get to do this with you. Would you come back for a part two at some point in the future? Yes, I will. I mean, you mean sit and talk about myself? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can, I can find some time for that. Well, any, anytime you feel like talking about yourself, I will be happy to hear you talk about yourself. Great. Well, good, Damien. I've, it's been fun. And I'm glad you're winding it up because it's just about long enough now. Thank you, Brian, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Brian will be back for a part two at some point in the near future. And there's a lot more to get to. Oh my gosh. What was not that fun? Oh, thank you so much to Christina again. And Tristan for, uh, you know, making that happen. And of course, Brian Baker for coming on the show. Uh, don't forget to check out the age of unreason, bad religions, most recent record and the multitude of incredible projects that Brian has been involved in, which I'm sure you're overwhelmingly familiar with if you're listening to this podcast, but, but just in case check out that band minor threat, they got a couple tracks on that thing on the discography of theirs. All right. Well, that's it for this week's show. But before I let you go next week on the show or next, next week on the show, later on this week on this show, we're going to, we're going to keep the hits on coming because it is Mark fucking arm from the band Mud Honey, Mr. Epp and the Calculations, Monkey Wrench, and and more. More. We get into all of it next week on the show. Touch me, I'm stoked. Oh my gosh, is it a good episode. We go into some deep, deep Seattle history. Oh, get ready. Get psyched. Uh, well, that's it um, for the show this week. Uh, go out there and make your own culture. Yes, you know, do whatever you need to do to keep yourself uh, going mentally right now. Uh, also, sign your organ donor cards. Um, and uh, fuck fascism. Like, again, fuck cops that are fucking killing people indiscriminately in Canada and America. Uh, you know, this is a punk podcast. And, and fuck, you're seeing it. Pe people have been saying it for years, and obviously it's been happening for for centuries, like you look at the, the origins of police forces in America and in Canada, like 
the the RCMP was originally put in place as a relate as a racist police force to impose uh, colonial rules on indigenous people here. So, it, you know, it extends on both sides of the border. Um, fuck, stay aware, keep your eyes open, look out for the people around you, and yeah, um, I'll see you next week on this show. Uh, thank you for listening, and uh, Black Lives Matter. And, uh, yeah, we got to stay together to get through this shit a hundred percent, uh, rough way to go out on this show, but you know, we got to do it. We got to keep talking. We got to tell everyone, uh, around us what's going on. Like if people aren't seeing it, they got to be told about what's happening anyway. Um, see you next week on the show. I love you. Stay safe.